You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the Book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. How many of you have ever felt discouraged? Do you ever feel discouraged from time to time? My guess is that you probably have. Kind of reminds me of the story of the army private who was training to be a paratrooper. So on his first mission, he was, uh, he was told to go out, and they said, okay, so here's what you're going to do. You're going to jump out of the airplane, then you're going to count to 10, and you're going to pull the ripcord on your parachute, and then it's going to open. But if it doesn't open, you've got an auxiliary chute. You just pull the cord on that one on the front, and then you'll be fine. You'll float down safely, and there will be a truck there to pick you up. So the guy, you know, it's his first jump. He's, uh, he's excited, so he, he does exactly what they say. He jumps out of the airplane, counts to 10, pulls the ripcord, and nothing happens. So, okay, okay, no problem. He's got another one, right? So then he pulls the cord on his auxiliary chute, and again, nothing happens. So, so first, his, his main parachute doesn't open. His other parachute doesn't open. He's just tumbling towards the ground, and he says, man, what a bummer of a day this is. He goes, I bet that truck's not even going to be there to pick me up on time. He was pretty discouraged. He was having kind of a bad day. Here in Acts chapter 22, we are picking up the story of the Apostle Paul and his missionary journeys at a place where Paul is extremely discouraged. He's had a lifelong dream, and his lifelong dream has been to share the good news of Jesus Christ with the people of Israel, his own countrymen in the great city of Jerusalem. And after many years of dreaming about this, his dream is finally uh, coming true. He's, he's there, he's in the holy city, and his heart is just full of anticipation and expectation and excitement for what God is going to do. He's sure that something wonderful is going to happen. But instead, everything comes crashing down. It's a big mess. Uh, It couldn't be worse. It's a disaster. As we're going to see today, Paul's efforts then to salvage this broken situation are only going to make things worse. Maybe you can relate to that. You've uh, messed things up before. You've And then you've said, okay, now I need to try and fix this broken situation, but all your efforts to fix that broken situation only made it worse. You, You just dug yourself deeper into a hole. But as we'll see today in Paul's case, there's also a sense in which he only had himself to blame for it, which makes it all the, all the harder. And so we find Paul the Apostle now moving from discouragement to greater discouragement. Maybe you can relate to that. But here's what's going to happen. God is going to meet Paul in this dark place of discouragement, and he's going to give him hope. And in this, we're going to see how we too can have hope, even in the midst of our discouraging circumstances. The title of today's message is The Hope Quotient, and here's what we're going to see. First of all, we're going to talk about what discouragement does, then we're going to talk about the difference that hope makes, and finally we're going to talk about how to get it. Uh, First though, we're going to go through this text and we're going to see the story and all that happened. To get you back up to speed, it's been a couple weeks, here's what's going on. Paul is in Jerusalem. He came here because he, he wants to put to rest some nasty rumors that have been circulating about him. The rumors were that he was anti-Jewish and that he was going around teaching Jewish people to forsake the, the ancient customs of Judaism. That wasn't really true. Uh, he wanted to put those rumors to rest. And as a gesture of kindness also, he brought with him a large sum of money. This was a kind of financial aid which he had collected from the Gentile Christians in what's now Turkey and Greece. And he had brought that to the people of Jerusalem to help them because right at this time they were suffering a famine. 
Yet as Paul arrives in Jerusalem, in spite of all his kind gestures, he's greeted even by the Christians with a lot of suspicion. They don't take him seriously. And in a further attempt to kind of win them over, win over these Jewish people, Paul underwent a very expensive ritual in the temple, and he even paid for four other men to go through this ritual with him at, at expense to himself. So however, though, in the, there in the temple, some people recognized Paul, and they falsely accused him of intentionally trying to defile their most holy place, the temple, by bringing Gentiles into it. This is something that was forbidden at that time. Now, this accusation was not actually true, but it did end up causing a riot, and the people were trying to murder Paul right there on the spot. Uh, The Roman military was on the scene, and they were able to intervene and save Paul's life, but once Paul got safe, he's there standing now on steps looking over the temple courtyard where this great crowd of people is who just tried to kill him. And he, he asked the Roman commander for permission to speak to the crowd and address the crowd. And, and they, they did. And that was what we read about in our study last time, a couple weeks ago. How Paul shared with this crowd the story of how he became a follower of Jesus and how God had worked in his life. How, how like them, he had been a zealous Jew. In fact, he hadn't wanted to be a Christian. He was a person persecutor of Christians, but yet even though he wasn't looking for Jesus, Jesus came looking for him. And Paul came to realize that Jesus had truly risen from the dead, and Jesus was indeed the the Messiah that he claimed to be. He was the Savior. He was even God himself come to us in human flesh. And this was all well and good, right? The crowd of people, it says that they they listened to him, and they were completely silent. These people who had a few moments ago wanted to kill him, now they're listening to every word he says with bated breath. They're hanging on his every word. And Paul, at this time, is probably thinking, wow, this is going surprisingly well, right? Like, I didn't expect this. And uh, up until this uh, time, you know, everybody's just listening. They're being attentive to what he's saying. They're listening to him talk about Jesus until Paul said one word, which caused this crowd to erupt, to blow up like like he threw a grenade into the crowd. And that one word was Gentiles. He said that God had made him a messenger to bring salvation to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. Now remember, the whole reason for this riot was because Paul, uh, some people had accused Paul of bringing Gentiles into the temple, which he hadn't actually done. But just the mention of that word, these people were so on edge, that just the mention of that word, the implication that God loves those unclean Gentiles just as much as his chosen people, Israel, well, that, they, these people found that outrageous, and they became very angry. And that's where we pick up the story in chapter 22, verse 22. Up until this word, which is the word Gentiles, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. Paul has been speaking to this crowd in the Hebrew language, which the Roman officials did not understand and so they aren't exactly sure why this crowd is so angry at Paul why they want him dead they can only assume that Paul must have committed some kind of crime to make these people this angry and if Paul's not going to tell them what it is well then they're going to have to get it out of him by force and so they decide they're going to flog him this is a way of extracting a confession through torture Now, this flogging or scourging, as it's called in some translations, this is what was done to Jesus 
before his crucifixion. This is what we talk about when we talk about Good Friday, what was done to Jesus. They would use a special kind of whip, which uh, was kind of like a cat of nine tails. And in the ends of each of the tails of this whip, they would have things sewn into it or embedded into it, like pieces of glass, pieces of bone. they just tie knots in the end. And the, the idea was that as they hit the person's bare skin with this whip, the bone, the glass, the knots would dig into their flesh. And when they ripped it off, it would just open up their flesh and leave their flesh raw. It was extremely brutal. And they would do this to elicit a confession or a recantation. In other words, they would say, okay, here's your chance to recant what you said, or here's your chance to confess to the crime. And if you wouldn't do it, they'd hit you for a little bit with this, you know, this terrible whip and rip your skin open, and then they'd ask you again, okay, are you ready to confess? Are you ready to recant? It was a terrible form of torture, and that's what they're preparing to do to Paul here. We pick up in verse 25. But when they had stretched him out for the whips... Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Now the idea of personal rights or human rights was not at all nearly as developed in the ancient world as it, was, as it is in our time today. In fact, the modern idea that all people are endowed with certain liberties, with certain human rights, and that there is such a thing as crimes against humanity. This actually comes, this idea which is now very popular in our world, it comes directly from the Bible. It comes directly from the Bible's teaching that all people are created equal because all people are created in the image of God. No matter what your race, no matter what your gender, even if you have disabilities, we are all created equal before God and we have inalienable rights. And so this is uh, not something that was taught actually by any other culture or society in the ancient world. It's something which comes directly from the Bible. In the Roman Empire, however, uh, not everyone had equal rights, but there were some rights which were allowed to Roman citizens, but not everybody had those rights. And unlike our society, not everyone in the Roman Empire was a citizen of the Roman Empire. Uh, to be a Roman citizen was a special status which had to be granted to you or which had to be inherited from a parent. Uh, but the great number of people who lived in the Roman Empire were not citizens of the Roman Empire. It was a special status which carried with it special rights and privileges. And one of these rights that came with Roman citizenship is that you could not be bound or, or tortured or imprisoned without due legal process. So that, that was a right of a Roman citizen, due legal process. And certainly you're not allowed to be scourged or tortured in this way. If, if anyone did those things, if any Roman soldier did those things to a Roman citizen, they would be arrested, they would be punished according to the law. So when this man hears that Paul's a Roman citizen, he's surprised and he immediately goes and talks to his supervisor. We read that in verse 26. When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? He said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. There were only a few ways to earn Roman citizenship. One was by purchasing it, which was very expensive. The other way was to be granted citizenship as a reward for some act of service that you did for the empire. Paul's father apparently had gotten citizenship. We don't know how. It was probably in one of these two ways. But we know that Paul's father was a citizen because Paul inherited this by birth, is what he says. 
So verse 30, on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him, that's a Roman uh, official there, unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he, bought, he brought Paul down and set him before them. The Roman commander's job was to keep the peace. And so he says, okay, we got to follow legal process because this man is a Roman citizen. So he brings Paul before the Jewish ruling council, which is also known as the Sanhedrin, if you're familiar with that term. And the, the whole purpose of this was to have this whole matter sorted out through the proper legal channels. Now, the Sanhedrin was kind of like the Jewish Congress of that day. It had 70 members. It was also known as the 70. And prior to becoming a Christian, we know that Paul the Apostle, he was actually a member of this council. The reason we know that is because Stephen, you remember Stephen, the first Christian martyr, he was put to death in, we read about that in chapter 7 of the book of Acts. But Paul the Apostle says, referring to him, that he says, I cast my vote for him to be put to death. What that tells us is that Paul had a vote. He was one of the 70. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. So for Paul, when he hears that he's going to be brought before the Sanhedrin, I imagine this is something which made him very excited. He was probably ecstatic. This is a group that he used to belong to. These are the leaders of this society. These are the lawmakers, the influencers. And he says, yes, perfect. Thank you, Lord. Paul had just had the opportunity to speak to a crowd of Jewish people in Jerusalem, but it hadn't gone well. Right? The situation kind of blew up in his face, and he never really got to say or make the point that he really wanted to make about Jesus because the crowd had freaked out and exploded after he said the word Gentiles. But now here he is, he's got another opportunity to speak about Jesus, and what more influential group is there in Jerusalem, in all of the Jewish world, than the Sanhedrin? What, more group, what, what group is there that is more knowledgeable about the scriptures than this Jewish Council, So he must be thinking, thinking, thank you, God, for this opportunity. This time, I'm going to do it right. This time, I'm really going to go for it. This is the opportunity of a lifetime. So let's check out what he says as he speaks to the Sanhedrin. Verse 1 of chapter 23. Looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up until this day. Now, to put this in some modern context for you, this would be kind of like if you were a pastor or a preacher and you got the opportunity to speak to a joint session of the Congress and the House of Representatives. This is every preacher's dream, right? Paul has probably been dreaming about this for years. Man, if I could only speak to that group the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders. If only I could speak to them again, what would I say? He's probably been rehearsing it in his mind as he lay in bed at night falling asleep. What would I say? And he's probably already knows, he's probably already rehearsed it so many times exactly what he wants to say to these people about Jesus. Check out what happens next though. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Pow! Just as Paul begins speaking, Ananias, the high priest, orders somebody to punch him in the mouth. What an insult. I mean, what a, what a terrible thing. Paul's claim of good conscience, he says, I've lived with good conscience all the days of my life, that offended the high priest. He considered Paul an apostate. He considered him a renegade. And so he orders him to be struck in the mouth, something which is actually forbidden by the Jewish law, but he did it anyway. Now let's see. Uh, think about this. How would you respond if someone did that to you? You get up to speak to a group of people, and then as you get out the first line, somebody comes and punches you in the mouth. How would you respond? to that. Um, Paul's going to respond in a, in a way which is very understandable. 
but in a way which he later regrets very much. Here's what he did in verse 3. Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you ordered me to be struck? This is an outburst on Paul's part. Paul, here he is, he's reeling from an insult. He got punched in the mouth. And, and here he is, he's, he, he's trying to deliver the world's best sermon. This is a sermon that, of a lifetime. This is what he's been waiting his whole life to preach this sermon. And here's his chance. And as soon as he gets one line out, somebody comes and punches him in the mouth and just totally throws him off. You can imagine. And out of anger, he lashes out at Ananias, the high priest. And he calls him a whitewashed wall. See, that's the same uh, term, it's the same phrase that Jesus used when he spoke to the Pharisees and he called them whitewashed tombs. The idea is that outwardly everything looks tidy and clean and perfect, but inwardly there's nothing but rottenness and death on the inside. See, outwardly this high priest has the appearance of holiness, but inwardly he's extremely corrupt. Actually, the more you read about this man Ananias, you find that he was actually later assassinated because he was an extremely corrupt man. So here he is, here's Ananias, the high priest, supposedly defending the law, supposedly judging other people according to the law, but yet he himself is breaking the law by ordering Paul to be struck in the mouth. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, that, this is what Paul's referring to. It was forbidden for a, a person to be struck without due process of law, and if they were struck, they would be struck on the back, not in the face. So Paul understandably is upset by this. Who wouldn't be upset by something like this? And he raises his voice and he shouts at the high priest. He attacks him with his words and says, God will strike you. Now I imagine Paul realized right away that he had made a mistake by doing this, by reacting this way. Here's this dream opportunity and now it's beginning to slip away and he kind of has himself to blame for it. Let's continue in verse 4. Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And immediately Paul apologizes for what he did. He says, Guys, I didn't realize it was the high priest. You're right. I should not have spoken in that way to him. I should have been more respectful. You're absolutely right. Because of his hot-tempered reaction, this opportunity, which he's been waiting a lifetime for, this opportunity to be heard by the Sanhedrin as he talks about Jesus, it is quickly slipping away. Verse 6, Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees, the other Pharisees, he cried out in the councils, Brother, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and it is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, no, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So here's Paul. He realizes at this point there's no way that he's going to get an honest hearing by these people. So he decides to kind of cut his losses and say, you know what, I need to do something to save myself before this council turns on me and tears me to pieces. So he notices that half the council are Pharisees, half are Sadducees. These are kind of the two main divisions in Judaism at that time. The Pharisees, despite their legalistic attitudes, which Jesus often addressed when he spoke to them, the Pharisees were kind of, they're kind of good guys, you know. I mean, they were the Bible believers of that day. They were a reform movement. They believed the Bible. They wanted to live according to what the Bible said. They took the Bible seriously. The Sadducees, on the other hand, 
They did not take the Bible seriously. They didn't take the Bible literally. They didn't believe in anything uh, supernatural. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in miracles. And certainly they did not believe in heaven. They didn't believe in hell. They didn't believe in judgment day. And they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead at the end of time. They believed that all that really matters is to be a good person in this life because as they said, there is no life after death. So Paul was absolutely accurate in what he said. He said, it is in regard to the matter of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. That was true. He was on trial because of his belief in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But what he's doing here is a very clever way of getting out of a very difficult situation. And it worked. Verse 9. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, uh, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. So a big fight breaks out between the members of the Sanhedrin. Things start to get violent. Once again, the Roman commander has to extract Paul from the situation in order to save his life. And your heart kind of has to go out to this Roman commander, right? Here he is rescuing Paul for the third time now. And they take him back to the barracks, the military barracks, and they're going to figure out, okay, what do we do with this guy next? And they place him in a holding cell for the time being. Now, if you're Paul... How do you think you're feeling right now? You're probably more discouraged, more disappointed than you've ever been at any other point in your entire life. In fact, we know that he is discouraged because it tells us that in the very next verse. Imagine how discouraged you would be if you were in Paul's shoes. Paul has lived the past 20 years of his life hoping for this opportunity. And he finally gets the opportunity. Surely for years he thought, if only I could be the one to tell, tell the Jewish people about Jesus. If, because I know the right way to present it. I know the right language to use so that they'll receive it. If only I could speak to the Jewish people about Jesus, they would surely receive it. If only I could speak to the Jewish leaders, the people who know the scriptures, I could show them. They would see that Jesus is the answer to all the riddles. And then he gets the opportunity, and it blows up right in his face, two times in a row. Nothing worked out the way that he had hoped it would. It must have been incredibly disappointing. And to make matters worse, there's the sense in which it's actually kind of his fault, right? It, it's kind of his fault that it turned out this way. I mean, you got to think, Paul, the kind of thing where you torture yourself afterwards, thinking, if only I wouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have said that. Why did I have to mention the Gentiles when I was talking to that group? I should have known better. I should have just talked to them about Jesus and won them over to Jesus. And then we could deal with the whole Gentile thing later on. Why did I have to bring up the word Gentiles? Or, or in the Sanhedrin, if only I would have just not reacted the way that I reacted. Yeah, the guy hit me in the face, but, but they also hit Jesus, and, and he didn't react that way. He didn't revile in return when he was struck. Jesus taught us to turn the other cheek. If only I wouldn't have reacted the way that I reacted. If only I wouldn't have lost my cool. If only I would have just taken it, I would have been able to even be, speak to them more powerfully about Jesus and the radical difference that he makes in your life. Do you know how deeply Paul wanted this? He wanted it so deeply that in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, Paul says, I tell you the truth, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish 
in my heart because of the Jewish people who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Messiah. Deep anguish, great sorrow, unceasing anguish. He was constantly burdened by this. It was something that bothered him. And and so much so was he burdened by this that he said there in verse 3 of Romans chapter 9, he says, For I wish, if only I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh, the Israelites. This is like a loving parent. How many of you parents know exactly what this is like? Your child's sick and you just are overwhelmed with the feeling, if only I could be the one who was sick. If only I could take that from them and I would be sick if it meant that they could be well. Paul is saying, I wish that I could be accursed so that they could be saved. That's how much I care about them. That's how much I love them. I would go to hell if it would mean that they could go to heaven. You see, that's the true heart of love, isn't it? Wanting the best for the other person, even at the cost of suffering yourself. This is something he wanted so badly, but when he got the opportunity, it all fell apart. And there was a sense in which it was kind of his fault. Try to imagine just how disappointed he was, just how discouraged he must have been sitting there alone in a holding cell in the Roman barracks. Lost opportunities, shattered dreams, a sense of guilt. If only I would have done that differently. If only I wouldn't have said that. If only I wouldn't have reacted that way. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Have you ever had a time when you felt that same way? I'll tell you this. Discouragement is something that touches us all. So let's talk a moment about what discouragement does in our lives. Howard Hendricks, who's a professor uh, at Dallas Theological Seminary, he describes discouragement in a very gripping way. Here's what he says about discouragement. He says, discouragement is the anesthetic that the devil uses on a person just before he reaches in and carves out his heart. Uh, Another writer says this, hopelessness and discouragement are the two thumbs on the throat of the world which are slowly choking people to death. Discouragement precedes destruction. See, this is what discouragement does in our lives. Discouragement precedes or precedes destruction. No one has ever come up to me and said, I'm so encouraged about my marriage, I'm going to get a divorce, right? No one ever says, I'm so encouraged about how well I'm doing in school that I'm thinking of dropping out. Uh, I'm so encouraged about how, how well things are going at work that I'm thinking of resigning and quitting. Every person who has given up, every venture that has failed, and certainly every person who has committed suicide or thought about suicide, they share one common emotion, and that emotion is discouragement. Discouragement is universal in the sense that it touches every person from time to time. Furthermore, discouragement is repeating in the sense that it happens more than once. In fact, it happens with some degree of regularity. Uh, Thirdly, uh, discouragement is contagious. It easily spreads from one person to another. Furthermore, though, discouragement is dangerous. In fact, discouragement is so dangerous that it can even be deadly. This is why we cannot afford to let ourselves remain or wallow in a state of discouragement. We cannot afford to stay in a state of discouragement, we must fight against it. Think about Moses, a great leader, a great man of God, someone used by God to do amazing things, wonderful things, to do the work of God. But yet at one time in his life, he was so discouraged, he felt like such a failure, he felt so alone, that he asked God seriously to please just kill him. The people he was trying to lead were constantly grumbling, they were constantly complaining, they were perpetually unhappy, and they were always 
taking it out on Moses. And Moses became so discouraged that in Numbers chapter 11, he asked God to please just let him die. Or how about Elijah? Elijah had been greatly used by God. But there came a time in his life where he felt that he was all alone, that he had failed as, as a prophet, that he felt that everyone was against him and no one would care if he was gone at all. He was so discouraged that he told God, I want to die, please take me now. David, Israel's greatest king, the man who stood toe-to-toe with Goliath and won, the writer of the Psalms, on several occasions, he says that he was so discouraged that he just wanted to die. See, discouragement touches us all, but if we linger in a state of discouragement, it can be extremely costly. It saps energy, it saps vision, it hurts our families, it chokes our faith, and it ruins our lives. Discouragement kills. Think of discouragement as your faith being choked. It's a serious thing. You don't leave that to itself. It will destroy you. So now, after we've talked about that, let's talk about the difference that hope makes. What is the difference that hope makes? Hope is a forward-facing confidence. Hope is a forward-facing confidence. Paul the Apostle says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Because we hope, therefore we are very bold. See, that's the result. When you have hope, it liberates you from the prison of your past mistakes. When you have hope, it motivates you to move forward and take action and not give up. When you have hope, it gives you a different perspective. Hope looks at what things can be rather than just resigning to the way that things are. Hope looks to the future rather than being stuck in the past. It has been said that It isn't people with money or resources who ultimately change the world. It's people whose hearts have been set on fire with hope. You see, that's even the story of the Christian church. That's what we're reading about here in the book of Acts. This whole story began with a group of discouraged disciples. They were discouraged, but yet their discouragement was replaced with hope as a result of seeing Jesus risen from the dead and hearing Jesus tell them of all that God was going to do through them by the power of the Holy Spirit. And even though they had no material resources, they changed the world and they led a revolution which continues on even to our day. See, hope is not just a feeling that you have. Hope is not positive thinking. Hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is a vision of what can be. It is a confident expectation of coming good, and hope changes everything. When people get a sense of hope for their marriage or for getting healthy or for making a difference in some area, rather than giving up, they're filled with bold confidence and they're motivated to move forward. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul puts hope alongside faith and love as the top three most important things that we need. So the question is, if hope is so important, then how do we get it? So that's our third one here. How do we get it? Now take a look at what happened to Paul in verse 11 and how Paul's discouragement was replaced with hope. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. There are three things to take note of in this verse which laid the foundation for how Paul's discouragement was replaced with hope. And these same three things are the source for us for hope as well when we need it. First thing was this, the Lord stood by him. The second is God's work in our work. And the third is a promise of the future. So first of all, the Lord stood by him. There is Paul. He's all alone in this Roman military barracks, this holding cell. He's discouraged. He's disappointed. He's feeling guilty like a failure. 
But during the dark night of his soul, Jesus stood by Paul. And Jesus' presence was so powerful that Paul could sense it. Even if Paul had messed up, God had not given up on him. The Lord stood by him that night. Even if everyone else in that city had forsaken him, Paul could be encouraged to know that Jesus would never forsake him. That's the promise that we have, by the way, that even if we are faithless, he will remain faithful because that is who he is and he cannot deny himself. Like Moses, like Elijah, who also felt that they had failed, who also felt that they were all alone, God was with them, God stood beside them, and that's true for you as well. Maybe you've failed in the past. Maybe you've made mistakes. Maybe other people have turned away from you and you feel alone. You can find hope in knowing that God has not forsaken you, that he will stand by you because he is faithful, he is committed to you, and he will never leave you or forsake you. That was the first source of hope. Jesus, the Lord, stood by him. Secondly, Paul's discouragement was turned to hope because the Lord encouraged him in something that is a source of hope for us too, and that is God's work in our work. Arguably, we could say that Paul did not do a perfect job there in Jerusalem in doing this uh, preaching of the gospel, but the Lord encouraged him by affirming that he had indeed testified about him in that city. See, Paul had come to Jerusalem with these huge expectations, but nothing worked out the way he thought it was going to. Nothing worked out the way he hoped it would. And here he is, he's discouraged, feeling like he should have, he could have done a better job. Maybe you can relate to that in the things you do. Maybe you feel that you're not doing as good of a job as you should have or could have. Maybe you feel like you're not having the impact that you wish you were having. Maybe you feel like you're just kind of stumbling and bumbling through all of the things that you're attempting to do. Maybe it's at your workplace or with your children, uh, but you feel discouraged because you're not seeing the kinds of results from your efforts that you had hoped to see or expected to see. Rather than being discouraged, take hope in this. Take hope in knowing that God is indeed accomplishing his work through your work. That's the hope that he gave to Paul, and it's important for us as well. Martin Luther spoke of what he called the masks of God and the fingers of God. These were his ways of describing how God accomplishes his work through our work. That, rather, that whether through our vocations or through raising our children, or through service to others, God is invisibly and providentially accomplishing His work through our work. So whether you're a farmer, or you're a doctor, or you're an engineer, or you're a children's ministry worker, or a set-up volunteer at church, God is accomplishing His work in the world through your work. And what that means is that we should seek to do these things with excellence because ultimately we're doing them unto the Lord and ultimately it's God's work. But it also means that it's ultimately God's work and he's committed to making sure that his work gets done and is accomplished. Furthermore, we know that when we speak God's words, we have the promise of, his, of the scriptures that they will not come back void. They will always accomplish what he wants them to accomplish. And so what that means is that there's always more going on than just what we see on the surface. There's, there's a spiritual element. There are things going on underneath. And that's why Paul says we should not lose heart because we know that in due season, if we continue doing good, we will reap if we don't give up. The third and final but perhaps most important factor which turned Paul's discouragement into hope and which is a source of hope for us as well is the promise of a future. 
the Lord tells Paul that as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, you're also going to testify about me in Rome. What that means is that until Paul gets to Rome, he's invincible, right? Because he's going to get to Rome. That's what he just knows. I'll tell you what, that gives you a lot of hope. That tells you this isn't the end of the road, sitting here in this prison cell by yourself. There's more to come after this. There are good things that are going to happen. God's not done with you. There's still a future ahead of you. There's something to look forward to, something more that's coming. And that gives him hope. Remember, hope is a forward-facing confidence. Like Paul, we too can have hope for this life, knowing that God has a plan for our lives, that he's working out, a plan which is ultimately for our good and for his glory. But even beyond that, there's a greater future hope that is promised to us, one which gives us ultimately a greater sense of hope because as Paul referred to earlier when he spoke to the Sanhedrin, this is what it's all about. It's about the hope of the resurrection. It's that sure hope That because Jesus rose from the dead, defeating sin and death, making a way for us to escape death, that if our faith is in him, even death is not the end of the road for us. It's just the first page in an endless book in which each chapter is more exciting than the one prior to it. It's this hope which gives us confidence. It's this hope which causes us not to lose heart. It's this hope which causes us to be of good cheer no matter what circumstances we face. And it is this hope which is ultimately the cure for discouragement, which motivates us to live and walk by faith today. Because, you know, here's the thing. There was one who was very similar to Paul in many of the regards of the story we've read today. There was one who, like Paul, although he had done nothing wrong, People turned against him. They wanted to kill him. But whereas Paul was, Paul's life was spared, his life was not. He was put to death. Whereas Paul was almost scourged by the Romans, this other one, he was scourged by the Romans. Like Paul, he also stood before the Sanhedrin and he was not treated fairly and justly. But unlike Paul, when he was hit, he did not strike back. He did not lash out. He remained silent like a sheep being led to the slaughter. Like Paul, this other man found himself all alone. But unlike Paul, rather than having the Lord stand beside him, for him, the Father turned away from him because on the cross of Calvary, he bore our sins. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This other man, he knew no transgressions, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was placed the chastisement which brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. Like Paul, he loved those to whom he came. He loved them so much that he was willing to be cursed so that they could be saved. But unlike Paul, who only talked about it, he actually did it. His name was Jesus. Ultimately, this story, this whole story is about him. He's the reason we can have hope. The truth is that apart from him and and what he did for us, there is no reason to have hope. You have every reason to be discouraged. See, the truth is that you and I, we are more broken, we're more lost, we're more sinful than we even realize, than we can even comprehend. We don't deserve for God to stand by us after all that we've done. But the good news of the gospel is that in spite of that, he does. He has chosen to stand by us because he loves us. He loves you. In fact, he loves you so much that he traded a crown of glory for a crown of thorns so that you who deserve thorns eternally 
could receive eternal glory instead. It's because of him that you can have hope today. And it's by focusing on him. It's by focusing on what he has done for you and the implications of what that means for you in your past, in your present, in your future. That is what raises your hope quotient. The amount of hope that you have, that's what causes it to grow. This morning I encourage you, focus your attention on him, the one who is greater than Paul and what he has done for you. I encourage you, receive the gospel today whether for the first time in your life, embracing Jesus, or for the 500th or 1,000th time in your life, you need to do it over and over. Receive the gospel. And as you worship him, as we sing this last song, as you go from this place and live a life of worship to him, may you increasingly grow in hope as you come to understand more and more how much he loves you and all that he's done for you. Would you please stand with me and pray? Lord, we thank you that as we look at Paul and we see a man discouraged, we can relate to that. Lord, thank you that in you we have the ultimate hope. We have the ultimate cure for discouragement, hope of the future to come, hope that you will stand beside us, hope that you are in fact doing your work through our work. Lord, we ask that you will be glorified in our lives and that today we say corporately as we pray together, yes, Lord, we receive the gospel. We receive what you did for us. Thank you, Lord, for bearing our sins. Thank you for giving us new life. Thank you for giving us a future and a hope. May these truths be alive in our hearts as we worship you and as we go from this place today. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.